Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, Lynn and Serene are joined by Dr. Carol Kaminsky. Originally from Australia, Dr. Kaminsky holds an MA in Old Testament and an MA in Religion from Gordon-Conwell, and a PhD from the University of Cambridge. She is Professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Carol is well known for her Casket Empty Bible series. She is founder and director of Casket Empty Media and the author of the Old Testament Casket Empty Timeline and Companion Study Guide. Dr. Kaminsky's research has focused on Genesis with two books published by TNT Clark, and she is currently writing a commentary on First and Second Chronicles in Zondervan's Story of God series and a Bible study on Chronicles titled Cultivating Godliness. Carol is married to Matthew, and they are the parents of two adult sons, Robert and Ryan. Welcome, Carol. Thanks so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. Great to be with you today. I'm so excited about this episode. You and I have known each other for years. I'm not going to state how many, Mm -hmm. right? That's probably not polite, but we, we've we done life together for a while as professors in biblical studies. You're up at Gordon-Conwell and um, uh, up in the Boston area, but that's not originally where you hail from. You actually uh, grew up in Australia. Is that right? That's right. I came from Melbourne, which unfortunately you'll hear very quickly from <laughs> Australian accent. Oh, Melbourne's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. And right now, while we're recording this, they have the uh, Aussie Open, Tennis Open, um, which my husband and I had the chance to attend one time. And uh, wow, what a dream. Just loved it. But yeah, Melbourne, it's a a great place. It's a great city. Oh, it's lovely. It really is lovely. And you don't get as much snow as what you have here in Boston. (laughs) So give me warm weather anytime. Yes, yes. Well, I'm excited to talk with you about Old Testament things because uh, that's your area, and we're going to dig in pretty deep uh, as the conversation goes on. But um, th- there's kind of this larger question, I think, um, about just how to read and study the Old Testament. I think people get intimidated. I know I do. That's why I picked the shorter, easier <laughs> Testament, New Testament, <laughs> instead of tackling the hard stuff. But, I mean, it, it feels so foreign, I think, uh, for me, at least, just a very, and, and actually the New Testament is also, it's just that somehow I'm, I'm you know, maybe more uh, uh, used to it. Uh, but we take, as you as you know, we sort of pick and choose because we're kind of nervous about reading the Old Testament. We grab a passage here or there and just kind of cling to it and and don't really don't really take the whole of the Old Testament. So how how do you recommend, let's say for your seminary students or uh, college students, like how do you recommend that they get into studying the Old Testament? I do think people are very intimidated by it. And I do quite a lot, not only at seminary context, but also teaching in the local church uh, and doing seminars. And I think people are intimidated by it. So they do select individual verses without necessarily knowing the context, or they may focus on a particular book like Isaiah, for example, 
and they might know that book well and love the book, but not quite sure how that fits within the larger narrative. So I think it's really important to think of the Old Testament as one kind of redemptive story or just in terms of narrative. Because if we separate it in individual books, we really miss the, the really the storyline. And I think you interpret the events and the circumstances within that larger narrative. But I think that also is a challenge because, as you know, Lynn, that the books are not all in chronological order and that creates problems. You've got the opening books that are in chronological order, but you think of the prophetical, 16 prophetical books are really according to the length and you can imagine someone trying to read a history book and let's say, oh, let's group all the, you know, World War II ground wars in one section and let's group all the air raids in another section. You know, you have to know the story to be able to put those pieces in the right context. And so I think that's another challenge, looking at the chronology of the books itself. And uh, I know Serene's going to jump in here in a minute to ask a further question related to the uh, the way we can help churches understand. But um, as as you were using that great analogy of grouping the land wars and the sea wars and the air raids um, and not pulling uh, pulling everything together, um, are there um, what what are the ways then that that you can help people create a timeline or, or how can, should, should people read the old Testament with uh, a timeline in mind? Or, I mean, how, how do you kind of overcome that? Yeah. Well, one of the things I've been doing over the about 20 years now is I'm part of what we call casket empty. So this is a new term for people, but it is an acronym to help people to learn the storyline of the Bible. And I'll talk about that in just a moment, but Basically, we have a visual timeline that really puts the story in chronological order, and the acronym is an entry point into it to help people to put the key events in the right place. So for the Old Testament, it's creation, Abraham, Sinai, kings, exile, temple. So it's within those larger blocks. And then the New Testament is expectations, Messiah, Pentecost, teachings, and yet to come. So that's putting it in a larger framework. And then what happens is I help people to put the biblical books in their chronological order. And some people say, well, should I read a chronological Bible? That's always a big question. And I think what we need to do is actually learn the storyline so that we can then see the prophetical books or see the historical books and we can learn about how they fit into the timeline, into that narrative, rather than, you know, moving our Bible and, and switching it. So I think we need to do some upfront work to do that. And the Cask and Empty project is really designed for quick access to people so that they can put the pieces together. And one of the things I find is when I do seminars in churches is that people will come up and go, I cannot believe how much this makes sense. I cannot believe it because they know the individual parts, right? They have the parts. They just, no one's helped them to put it together. And, and so that's what I love doing because people then feel they have access and like, okay, now I understand. And of course, we love visuals. Visuals are a great way to learn that whole narrative. Carol, I am intrigued by Casket Empty and I want to learn some more about it because there's a couple of things that you just said that stood out to me. 
And it's this great reminder that we're putting together the pieces of this bigger story. We're getting a picture where maybe we started out with just a glimpse of one small part of the story. And as we go a little deeper, we start to see the bigger narrative forming. And I think as someone who serves in the local church, I can see how the Old Testament can be hard to get into for the first time. There's some hurdles there as we try to understand what's happening in the world of the Old Testament. And even as you said, where where to even begin. And there's two main ways, I think, in the church with other believers that we're hearing scripture. We, we hear scripture on the weekends and our Sunday messages, but then we go even deeper in our small group studies where we can take more time to really piece together these scriptures and go a little deeper. But sometimes I think as small groups, we can try to approach the Old Testament and very quickly get overwhelmed because there is so much there and so much of it isn't as familiar as Lynn already pointed out. It can feel foreign to us. So I would really like for you to share a little bit more about Casket Empty and some of these amazing resources that you've put together. I've been taking a look at some of them, and there's some really great stuff there. So would you share with us some more about what you've put together? Yeah, so what what I've done through the Casket Empty Project, and I'm the author of the Old Testament, and then I work with Dr. David Palmer, who's a New Testament um, scholar. He does works on the New Testament side. Uh, Think of this, a, a number of years ago, I became a U.S. citizen, and so I had to prepare for the U.S. citizen you know, I think there were probably 400 or 300 items that I need to turn. But what happened with this is if you look at some of the resources there to help you to prepare for that, someone has done the work who knows the history of America and is going to say to you, these are the key presidents you need to know about. These are the key um, texts that are, and dates. Someone else who's done all that can tell, say that to me and I can go ahead and, okay, I can get the framework for the history of the United States. So in, if you think of it in the same way for the Old Testament, I've spent years and years uh, studying this, but what I've been able to do is say, okay, if it, what are the important pieces that you need to know for, from that narrative? For example, one of the bullet points that we have highlighted on the timeline for Genesis is Genesis 15, 6, that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, for a a reader who's just reading through Genesis, they might not know how important that verse is. But what I've done is I'll say to people, you need to have that underlined. This is really important theologically to understand how the Old Testament fits with the new. Or it may be the promises God makes in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. You know, how do we, knowing that those are really important, uh, that is what I help people to do through this series. So the timeline has bullet points under each section with key events and key people. Uh, But then we also have a Bible study, and I did the Bible study. We have an 18-week going through the Old Testament, so usually about four chapters of Bible reading and about 10 to 12 questions per week. And I did this Bible study with my women's group at my local church, We had a wonderful time. We had about 30 women. We broke up into three groups and we went through the study. And I intentionally, since I'm a faculty member and I've done work in this for so long, I intentionally don't lead a small group. I'll do a 10-minute introduction, but I want to make sure and empower other women to teach other women. So they use then the study guide with it. So it's an 18-week. And what happens is people start to see who God is. That's what I love. They start to see the character of God 
that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And sometimes women would come just in tears going, I cannot believe how much I'm loving going through the Old Testament. Uh, And so we have the New Testament. I'm actually got Bible study tonight and we're going through the New Testament portion, which is like 14 weeks. So it gives you 32 weeks overall. Uh, But it's simply explained um, not taking on too much and highlighting all the key events and people. Oh, that is fascinating. Um, Carol, you mentioned about God's character, and that was literally a note that I uh, wrote as you were uh, talking about um, early on with the timeline. What have you found um, impresses people or surprises people as they go through the Old Testament? Like they had some ideas about who God is, and then they discover happily that they were wrong. What are some of our big misconceptions about who God is that that um, your study of the Old Testament overturns? Yeah, I think one is that they perceive God to be different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. I think that happens over and over and they perceive God to be a God of judgment. So because they've isolated some of those stories and they're not understood in the context, right? We need to interpret events within a narrative context. So they isolate those and then they say, I prefer really reading the, the New Testament. <laughs> I know, I'm sure you love that. Then. Everybody likes, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and everybody likes Jesus, right? Yeah. And we have this, it's not a completely true um, statement in, in as much as we think of Jesus as only someone who loves us and we forget that he also is the judge and as as empty ends with the uh, yet, yet to, to come. come. Um, That's so, right. So I think, uh, I think we do, you know, need to think through who Jesus is, you know, in terms of that um the perceived kind of difference, but realizing that Jesus exegetes or explains the Father. And and ultimately, I think what happens for people is when they start to see who God is, and I think he's the hallmark of his character in the Old Testament is that he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's the Exodus chapter 34, where he reveals the divine name. He is holy. He is judge of all the earth. He is all these things. But I think what people start to see is this, gosh, I cannot believe God is like this. And not only do we see the character of God, but I think people also see that God's people in the Old Testament were more sinful than I thought they were (laughs) because they're they're actually the, the flip side of the same thing because I think people assume that a lot of people in the Old Testament were righteous, but there were some you know, there were some people who messed up. but and, and right from the beginning in the book of Genesis, you see these sagas of these families, dysfunctional families and all the stuff that takes place. And suddenly people start to say, oh, oh my gosh, I, what is God doing? Because what you see is God is entering into the messiness of people's lives and the sin. And you see his character from the very beginning. You know, I've done Bible studies sometimes with people who are not Christians and we've looked at Genesis and I said, what do you notice? And I'm like, they're like, I didn't realize people were like that were in the Bible. And I'm like, oh, they're all over the place, just so you know. <laughs> but that also shines through for God's character. 
Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Well, um, let's stay in Genesis for a minute because I know you've worked uh, in the story of Noah. And that's that can be a tricky one, speaking of God's character. Um, and, and also sometimes it's hard maybe for us in today's world to just imagine somebody building a boat. I mean, I know there've been movies made in, recently about, <laughs> I forget what the movie yeah. is called, Serene will probably know, but anyway, but you know, of someone doing that. So it's a really, it's an odd story from so many angles, but you've even done, um, you've done close work on that. And um, yeah, talk a little bit about how we can understand the story of Noah and even maybe especially as women, does the story have something special for us? Yes, I uh, have written a book called Was Noah Good? Finding Favor in the Flood Story, but it is a more of a technical kind of academic volume. Uh, but one of the things that struck me as I was going through Noah, and I know this may surprise you, but I was doing work over in Cambridge and my sister had just had a baby baby, and I was looking at kids' books. And I came across this book in one of the kids' stock that there once was a good man named Noah. And I had been working in Genesis chapter 6 with the sin of humanity, and one of the things that I've been arguing in my work in Genesis was that Noah is a sinner like everybody else. And what sets him apart is divine favor, Genesis 6, 8, which says, but Noah found favor. So I'd, I'd been thinking about all of this. And then I'm in this store with um, Christian bookstore and I see there once was a good man named Noah. And I'm like, no, it doesn't say that Noah was good. Well, that set me on this journey. And, and I've looked at you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 kids' books. And if you what, you, what happens is you see the story of Noah and it says there once was a good man named Noah. God had a special plan for his life. And the, the language of grace is absent. But what happens in Genesis is in Genesis 6, it says God looked at the wickedness of humanity and he wanted to destroy everyone. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 following. And then the contrast is not but Noah was a good man, or but Noah was righteous. The contrast is, but Noah found favor. And that term used for favor is used in the Jacob and Esau narrative. It's also the term used when Moses, when the Israelites have made a golden calf, if I have found favor in your sight, if I and your people have found favor. And so what I think happens with the flood story is that God is showing favor to Noah. I think he's a sinner like everybody else. And, and, and even that can feel a bit jarring because we're so used to the kids' books. So when we talk about what is, how is this relevant for children and for parents and for mothers, I think one of the things we need to recognize is that we don't want to use the Old Testament to try and teach moral good stories like right? because one of them is Noah. There once was a good man. And, and you see the work ethic comes through. There's a whole history of how they introduced work into it. And there's one great kids book I have, you know, that God said to Noah, you are good, Noah. And Noah says, thank you, God. You know, <laughs> so he's even polite, <laughs> right? Yes. Well, that's and probably washes his hands yeah. for more meals. Um, wow. But I think yeah. the story is about God's grace to Noah 
and he is declared righteous in chapter 7, 1. So I do think he's righteous, but I don't think he's righteous when God finds him. And so what this should say, even for kids' books, is, you know, there once was a man who, um, when he was young, he used to hit his brother just like you did, <laughs> you know, whatever, right? And, and the same thing we do with Abraham. If you look at uh, books on Abraham, it says there once was a good man named Abraham, and that's just not true. Joshua 24, 2 says that he was an idol worshipper, and there's a whole story of Abraham in Ur that's, that reminds us that God calls him out of his grace and his mercy. So that those contribute to those themes of grace again when read correctly. Oh, and that is so redemptive. When I think of, um, you mentioned Jacob and Esau, and I'm reading through Genesis now and thinking of the story of those men and women factor into that with uh, Jacob's wives of Leah and Rachel. Um, and it feels to me sometimes that we are willing to uh, cut some slack with Noah or with Abraham, but we're less willing to do that with some of the women in Bible. Let's say um, uh, moving into Joshua, like uh, Rahab and her occupation, and somehow that's God used her also in amazing ways, but we can't seem to step over what her occupation was, but yet. Noah and Abraham, as you point out, are also just average sinners like the rest of us. Can you talk a little bit about how we might be able, and and let's just, we can stick it in um, Genesis for a moment, how we might better read the women in Genesis? Yeah, I think think you're exactly right. With Rahab would be a really good example because in James, who does he quote, right? Abraham and Rahab because if you look at Abraham, uh, what is fascinating with him, again, I think it's a false gospel by saying he was a righteous man. I think it's a false gospel because what you find when you come to Genesis chapter 15 where it talks about Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, you know, when Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 4, as you know, the Greek term is that asabase, that's the Greek word for wicked in Genesis, in the Sodom story. So what Paul's saying is, and I think it fits with the Genesis narrative, is in Genesis 15, at the moment of justification, he was on the guilty side of the (laughs) equation. He was on the, so, and what we do is we elevate them as if, you know, everyone's wicked and, oh, God found one good person. Thank goodness. And so I think we need to rethink those stories of the patriarchs and that will then make sense. Why does James put Abraham and Rahab together? Oh, because they're both sinners saved by God's grace who then show works according to, to verify, to demonstrate that they really were people of Yahweh worshippers. You know, so I think... uh, And and then also when we come to the women in in, uh, Genesis is, of course, Eve doesn't do the right thing. (laughs) So so you have the story of Eve there. Then you have the story of um, Abraham and Sarah in Chapter 16. And some of the language in 16 echoes Chapter 3. And some would say, look, what this means is that, 
you know, women are more open to deception and Genesis 16 just confirms this, right? But then we need to, again, we've talked about narrative. Genesis 21 is another example where Sarah says to drive out Ishmael and God comes to Abraham and he was distressed about it and God says, obey your wife. And the language there, if you look at translations, they're going to say, listen to your wife. But the Hebrew idiom is obey, shema plus bukol in Hebrew. And, and here we have a moment where what, what Sarah is saying, according to Galatians chapter 4, is God's will and purpose. And even it says, and what does the scripture say? So her very words that she says drive out this woman and her son, the very words that she's saying, Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, what does the scripture say? And he quotes Sarah. I mean, how interesting is that? So we we need their complex characters. The women are complex characters. The men are complex characters. And we don't want to simplify them, just as our lives are complex as well, right? We don't want to simplify them. But God is working in their lives in the midst of the messiness in the midst of the bad decisions and the good decisions. And that's such a comfort, you know. Carol, I think one of the things that's so helpful to how you just phrased that is because we often, if we grew up in a church tradition, we do grow up reading those books that you referenced earlier. We hear the stories of our Bible heroes and they feel so distant from who we are. And it can feel like they are on this pedestal of experiencing God in this way that maybe feels very distant from our everyday experience of God in our own lives. And so realizing that these are messy people, everyday sinners, as we said earlier in the episode, uh, that are experiencing God's favor and God's grace helps us orient ourselves within the story of the Bible and within the story of of God with his people. And so I think that that's so helpful to be able to sort of reframe how we are reading the complex stories of these people that we see in scripture. I think it does. And and I find uh, when people do studies in Genesis, I will have people say, well, my dysfunctional family doesn't look that bad after all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and really, you can say, you know, God's not afraid of sin, and he really is the God of Genesis chapter 1. You know, he is the God, the creator God, and he can change lives, and he works in them. I think of another story of uh, Judah and Tamar. Right? Again, we, we've, we've elevated Judah, and you think of the story where you know, he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law and some people will say, well, he didn't know that. And I'm like, well, he thought she was a prostitute. Why is he going to a prostitute, right? But, and even in that story, he says to Tamar that she is more righteous than I am. You know, but you go, don't hear too many stories about that. That's another example. These are complex characters. And uh, Judah is one of our of course, from the tribe of Judah, the whole kingship, and yet it also reminds us of God's grace coming to him and to Tamar, to both of them, and the redemptive work that he does in spite of it. Oh, absolutely. In fact, one could argue that Tamar is the one 
that sets Judah back on track, that he had been sliding further and further away. And she reminds him of his family and his responsibility to his family. And the, um, let me ask you this, because it does deal with um, women having children as the way that God continues to provide for Israel. And today, uh, 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 well, God provides for women to have children so the human race can continue. Let me rephrase myself. But in in Israel, you have these um, miraculous births or there's special mention of births as a way to show God is preserving Israel. How do we, I have seen today that um, logic imposed on women today to kind of say your your main essence is as bearing children. I don't know if you've run across that kind of idea or not. First, is it something that we do find in the Old Testament? And if so, how do we interpret it as God's word for us today in in appropriate sense? Yeah, so I think... You, of course, have the creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, image making and being made in the image of God. And you have the be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And then that promise is then repeated in chapter 9, verse 1. So, and of course, people will also say, well, you know, Eve was, some would say that Eve is created as helper and one of the roles is for children. I don't take that view. I think helper needs to be separated because it's not in Genesis chapter 1, but some will say that. So what is interesting is you have also alongside this importance of children and begetting, it's all over Genesis, but you also have barren women in there, which is fascinating, including with Sarah, the fact that you've got Abraham and Sarah, this couple who are really this key moment within the redemptive story, And here you have chapter 11, verse 30. It says, and Sarah was barren. She had no child. You have to say, what is going on with the creation mandate? And I think what's happening is that God is um, taking responsibility, if you like, for the creation mandate. Because what you find is those verbs, be fruitful and multiply, appear in the promises God makes to Abraham and Sarah. I will cause you to be fruitful. I will cause you to multiply. And why is that important? I think as you look at Genesis, if you trace that narrative, and my own dissertation was on be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) But what, what happens in Genesis is, you know, Abraham has Ishmael and Isaac, but only Isaac is a child of promise. And this is Isaac is being born according to God's promise, according to his word. And I think what it's going to do within the overall narrative, and of course you've got to go to Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 9, but what it's saying to us is the fulfillment of the creation mandate can be through biological children, but ultimately it is the spiritual children, both Jew and Gentile, people from all nations who are born according to promise like Isaac. 
So what does that make, what difference does that make for us? I think what that means for women today, and I do hear that, Lynn, I, I hear that it's seminars. I think people also take it from the Deuteronomy when there'll not be a barren woman. I've had one woman who was just weeping at one seminar and said, her husband said, you, you must, look, the scriptures say this, there must be something that you're doing that you can't, I mean, Jesus was weeping. And I said to her, you know, just be able to say, this is what God's word. And he even said, oh, maybe there's some curse that's come upon you. And I'm like, you know, you need to know that the curses of the covenant are on the cross. That's what Jesus says. They're not, they're not, they're not on you. They're on the cross, right? So I think what this storyline is telling us is that not all Israel, biological children, are God's people. And we fulfill the creation mandate through spiritual descendants. So we have some women in our church who have never had children themselves, but they are spiritual mothers. And I think that's because what you want to have is children who are image bearers. These are so I so I think there's a wonderful um, movement within Genesis that takes us through this whole narrative of the Old Testament into the New Testament and that shows that the children of Abraham are these spiritual children, and that includes all of us, whether you have biological children or not. Oh, that is so powerful. Wow. What what a blessing. Yeah, well, I I, want to go from the area of of the Old Testament where we are more familiar, that is Genesis, to an area of the Old Testament that you love, but is kind of less well-known, and that is Chronicles. I know you're doing a Bible study on Chronicles, both for Casket Empty and uh, writing a commentary. And, you know, I uh, I probably could find it if you gave me enough time as I look through my <laughs> Old Testament. But tell us a little <laughs> bit about why you love Chronicles and what are we missing by not reading it? Yeah, Chronicles, I I remember a couple of years ago I had someone ask me what I was doing on my sabbatical and I said, oh, I'm doing Chronicles. And um, she said to me, oh, Chronicles of Narnia? (laughs) And I'm like, no Chronicles in the Bible, (laughs) you know. So, yes, it's neglected. Uh, The reason I was drawn to Chronicles, one is because it's neglected and I feel like uh, it's such a beautiful book. And it is interesting because the verb to seek God's face, the verb to seek, occurs more often in Chronicles than in any other book. So Chronicles is actually all about prayer. It's about seeking God's face. It's about relying upon him. Uh, the temple narrative is central and getting a vision of God's heavenly kingdom and uh, very, very rich material because one of the things too is Chronicles is written during that final time of the Old Testament. So in the last hundred years, and this is a time when God's people had been into exile. They come back into Jerusalem and it's a tough time for them, you know, from the book of Nehemiah and and, and their land's not what it used to be. There are foreigners living around them. They've got part of the diaspora living in Babylon and other cities that seem to be doing well. 
And I think the chronicler, we call him the chronicler because we don't know his name, that he's writing at this time to encourage God's people to put their trust in him, to have faith, to pray, to see that the kingdom is still being established. And so these are wonderful themes, um, which I'm, of course, not only writing in the commentary, but also in the Bible study. Oh, that is, that's great. Is there a particular story as we close out our time? Is there a particular story in Chronicles um, that that you just, that warms your heart more than others? Uh, can I give you two quick stories? <laughs> sure, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, 1 Chronicles chapter 29 is David at the end of his life. It's just a beautiful prayer that he's at the end of his life and he recognizes God's hand upon his life. He recognizes that everything has come from God and he gives of his treasures, he gives of his gifts to give back to the Lord. And it's a very sweet moment. And I think about when I'm getting older, you know, I want that to be my posture as I move. And you contrast that with Solomon, who cares about how many horses he has and the, the the gold that's being used and there's a contrast with those two. So I love David. And then my other story is Jehoshaphat. I just think he's a wonderful, wonderful king. Uh, and he's in the second Chronicles, the second part and chapter 20 is a good example. But Jehoshaphat um, kind of has some mistakes earlier in his reign and he almost gets killed. And at the last moment, he cries out to God for help. And you really see the transformation of this king because when He's fighting a battle. Instead of calling up his military, it says he set his face to seek the Lord. And that brings us all into the big themes of the book about prayer and fasting and seeking God's face, relying upon him. And you know the story in chapter 20 that they're going out into battle and the Levites are singing before they've won the battle. The Levites are singing and they're praising God for his loving kindness. So it's a fun, fun story. Uh, and it's an attitude we should have each and every day. I love that. Thank you so much, Carol, for spending some time with us here on the Alabaster Jar. Just thank you so much for your wisdom and insight in the Old Testament. It's been wonderful. And of course, I could keep on talking about Chronicles or Genesis. <laughs> yeah, and I could keep on listening. So yeah, this this has been great. We'll have you on again. Well, wonderful. We'll keep going. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us here at the Alabaster Jar podcast. We've included links in today's episode description for you to learn more about Carol's work and explore the resources available at casketempty.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation exploring the issues that impact women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. Please share this episode with someone who would enjoy it and subscribe to be reminded every time we upload.